You know, last week as we were looking at the scripture, we were we talked about having a clear vision for the new year. And one of the best ways to have a clear vision for your new year is to have a clear vision of who you are. Um, is to have an understanding. And if, if, if someone were to ask the question, who are we? If someone were to ask the question, who are you? How would you answer? And this morning, I really want to begin just a short series for us on who we are, that we can answer the question, who are we? Who are we as a group of believers, as a group of people that gather in this part of the city of Indianapolis, um, under the banner of Christ and the greater body, but who are we? And so I'm going to title this, Who We Are, and today we're going to talk about we are a chosen nation and a holy household. We are a chosen nation and a holy household. We're going to be looking at two scriptures. The first one will be in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter, in this particular text, just to give you some backdrop and understanding, Peter is encouraging. If you go to the beginning of the book, you see who he's writing to. As a matter of fact, let me have you stand just real quick as we read just the first part. We'll be reading a longer text a little later. But for this one, as we, as we start this off, who we are, a chosen nation and a holy household. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, and let's read together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. You may be seated. Many of us are familiar with that text, but, but, but do we understand the backdrop? Understand what Peter was doing. If you go back to the very beginning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Understand what he is saying here. He says, I'm writing to a group of people who are living as exiles, which means they were dispersed from their whole land, thus the dispersion, and the dispersion was when persecution broke out in that part where the gospel was first preached and started. When it, when it, when it broke out, it caused Christians to scatter as they not only went to proclaim the gospel, but as they ran for their lives because it broke out so intense. And so they were dispersed, thus the dispersion, and so they were sent out they were really sent out all throughout. Now, some might have complained, but we realized this was within God's plan. And so in the suffering that they had, they all spread out across all these areas. But when they spread out, they didn't leave complaining. They left proclaiming because they brought the gospel to all these places. I know you would notice one of them there, it says Galatia, which is where you get the book of Galatians, because Paul later writes to the people of Galatia. But as we look at these different cities, 
Peter is writing to them because they are suffering greatly. And so understand, this letter is written to a group of Christians who have been displaced, who have been dispersed, and now who are suffering greatly, and he is writing to encourage them. One of the things that Peter wants them to see, and, and, and let me just read this particular one um, from a commentary on First and Second Peter. I'm going to read it just as it says. They are encouraged to persevere, knowing that a great reward will be theirs on the day of salvation. Such perseverance is exhibited by living a godly life, living as good citizens, model slaves, gentle wives, and understanding husbands. He's going through the book. When believers live in such a way, they indicate that they are placing their hope in God rather than in the joys and the comforts of this world. And understand, these are Christians that have probably lost just about everything. When they dispersed, they had to leave home. Brings into mind some of the people that were dispersed from the Middle East whenever, whenever things had begun to break out and persecution was there. What brings to my mind is a, is a young lady, that, that uh, a, a young early 20s Iranian woman who had become a Christian, but the persecution in Iran ramped up so much she fled. And she fled to our section of Germany. And as she came, she started to attend a Bible study with some women from our church um, who spoke Farsi, who spoke her language, because they were missionaries in that area. They had been displaced earlier and were wondering, God, what were you going to do that you, that you drove us from the area where we had ministry? But what they didn't know is when God drove them, he was driving other people. And so we had a group of Farsi-speaking people that came into our little area, and these women formed a Bible study with these women that heard the gospel that would have never heard it otherwise. And so this young woman, after she had begun to grow in her faith, um, she was baptized in our church. We had an opportunity to baptize her. And then she made this comment. She said, I have to go back. And everyone looked at her like, you have to go back where? She says, I have to go back to my country. She says, I have to go back and proclaim this good news. She knew what awaited her, and she may not even know all of what awaited her. But when she was planning to head back, skills as a nurse, 20-something years old, she was heading back into a country that had caused her to flee for the persecution of her faith, knowing that she was going to go back under that which was intense and that which was heavy. And so sometimes we go, well, I would never do that because I wouldn't put myself in that position. Well, what Peter was saying is that being in that position, you may be right in the center of God's will, that your suffering, that your, that your hardships, that what you're enduring because you are a believer may be just what God ordered. Now, I know that messes with somebody's theology right now because somebody told you when you came to Christ, everything was going to be great. God has this wonderful plan for your life. And when they say wonderful plan, they don't necessarily mean that you're going to face hardship. They just mean, oh, yay, you come to God and, 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 and he'll hook you up. And yes, you are hooked up in the fact that you have eternal life. But God did not promise any of us that we would not face hardship. As a matter of fact, if you look in the scripture, you will see it promised more that you will face difficulties than you will have a life of ease. But we've been sold this teaching that 
come to Christ and he'll give you all you want. And so we have a group of people sitting in our churches today that are waiting for their hookup. And then they get mad when God doesn't give it. God never promised it. You are hooked up if you know Christ in that your destiny is secure. The moment you leave this planet, you are in the presence of the Lord. You are set. And as a matter of fact, while you are here, you are set because God says you are in the middle of my will and nothing passes my hand unless I allow it or ordain it. So wait a minute, God, you mean that if this happens in my life that you knew about it? I sure did. And he either chose to interrupt and prevent it from happening or he lets it happening and he holds you through it. And that's how we live our lives. And so this group in First Peter, this group was now going through. They were suffering. And he writes to them and he tells them, hold it down, y'all. Keep trusting. Don't lose sight. But if you go back to some of the other parts of the chapter, you will see... You will see where he encourages them to keep living holy, not to veer off, not to begin to live as the people around them, because you and I both know, you and I both know that when we are suffering and we see those that, wouldn't, that, 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 that could not care less about living for God, living great, we start to wonder, am I doing the right thing? Oh, come on, God, I, I'm, I'm, I'm living right and holy, and yet I can't keep it together. I'm going through all these trials and hardships. I'm trying to keep myself financially sound. I'm trying to keep my family together, but it just seems to keep coming at me. And this person over here who doesn't even think three cents about you is living large. What's up? Peter knew that, and he was telling them, keep living holy. Don't look at the society around you and join in. Why? Because he knew that you could be worn down through persecution. You can be worn down through suffering. There was a time throughout history that people thought that First Peter didn't apply because they didn't now have to face the, the onslaught from the society. And now when Christianity had become much more accepted and approved by the greater populace, there was no need, but they misunderstood. There was always a need because the call to live holy is always countercultural. The call to live out your faith the way the Bible instructs will always have you opposed to, to someone somewhere. You will always have opposition, sometimes intense, sometimes a little, but it will always be there. If everyone in society is your friend, if everyone around you that does not know God is approving of, the, of, of you, you might be with them, not Christ. See, there's nothing wrong with being able to mix within the culture. God wants us to do that. He doesn't want us to stand out as these kind of weird anomalies and, 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 and something really freaky and, and weird, and we think that we call that Christ. Like, no, 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 no. God knows how to make us distinct and to stand out, but it's okay for us to be able to embrace and to engage the society while standing apart from it. 
And that's what God calls us to do. But make no mistake, sometimes the way you believe will get people to look at you kind of twisted. To to look at you as if something is wrong. To look at your stance for morality as if you were immoral. To the fact that you choose not to do something, they want to make you feel like you're the weirdo, when in essence it's what God calls for. It may even cost you positions on your job. It may cost you the ascent in your career. It may cost you some relationships with your family. It may cost you some of the dreams that you had. But the deal becomes, he says, God says, but, but I chose you. Who are we? We are a chosen nation. So Peter was encouraging this group. Think of this point. Peter intends for his readers to know who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. Let me read that again. Peter intends for his readers to know who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. And if you don't know who you are in God, it's going to be a hard time for you to represent him when you step out into society. And we have a lot of people today confused about who they are in Christ. And thus, when they go to represent them, they don't know what to represent. And if, to be honest with you, many of the people that claim to know Christ, it would be hard to distinguish them for those that do not believe in Christ. There wouldn't be anything different about their lives. They entertain themselves the same way. Not saying that you can't entertain yourself in a particular way, but it says that you know what they 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 entertain themselves the same way. They they base their life on the same rules. They 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 live according to the same set of values. Our marriages in the church fall apart at the same rate as our marriages outside of the church. Our families are being led in the church the same way that they're being led outside of the church. Where's the difference? God says, I have chosen you. You are a chosen nation. And then we'll see a holy household. And so the first part of being chosen, you are chosen So he's telling you, here is how you handle life in a culture that's difficult. Well, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 9. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 9. And he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Understand that the language that Peter is using, and he's tying back into the Old Testament, The Jews, again, when God made them a people, he made them into a people. They were idol worshipers. They weren't people that hit the ground running holy. When God called Abraham, Abraham was part of a family that worshiped idols. If you read in Genesis, the chapters before, you see where they were. And when they were down in Ur, that area was known for his idol worship. And his multiple deities, and God called out to him and brought him out. That's exactly what he did for all of us today. He reached into our mess and he called us out. And then God set him on course to go somewhere, and he set him on course. God had the plan and called to him in the darkness. 
And so that's the thought that Peter is giving us here when he says, you are a chosen nation or race. And then he says, a royal priesthood. So not only have I made you a people, when you are a royal priesthood, the priesthood were the only people that could communicate with God in Old Testament times. And so he says, I've called you out to be a people of my own that can communicate with me directly. Because only the priesthood could communicate with God. And so he says, you're a people that have access to me. Hey, that's just like in our families. My kids have access to me more than anyone else would have access to me. Why? Because they're my children. And God is saying, you're my children. You, have, you, have, you don't need anyone else. You have direct access to me. And then he goes on to explain more of what he means. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And look at this when he says the intent for bringing you out and forming you as a group was that you would live as a holy nation of people. Understand what he's talking about. He's talking to displaced people that don't have a nation. He's talking to people that were exiled from their homes. And listen to the language that Peter is using. He is using nationalistic, you know, from a godly perspective language. He is saying, you belong to God. I know right now your, your different countries have thrown you out or have caused you to run, but I am taking you in. You belong to me. So he says, royal priesthood, holy nation. And here's why. Why did he do all that? He answers that question. I mean, a people for his own possession that, and here's the answer, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look at what he said. The reason I made you into a people wasn't so that I could hook you up. The reason I made you into a people wasn't so that you can get yours and, 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 and I can look for my destiny and I can wait for mine one day. He said, no, 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 no. The reason I called you out of darkness into his, and I love this, into his marvelous light. The descriptor of it, light would have been enough, but he's saying, but that light is marvelous. It is actually that which will bring awe to you. So he says, the reason I did that is so that you would proclaim me and all of who I am to this world. He said, I formed you so that you would talk about me. So you would proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out. And so the whole point of him bringing us together is that we would talk to the world about God. Who are we? We're a nation that is to proclaim the one who formed that nation. And we would let the world know that he is, he is still bringing in people into that nation and that you can be one of them as well. Are we doing that? He says, who are we? We're proclaimers of the excellencies of God because he took us out of darkness and brought us into light. That is amazing. 
That should be one of the main things we continue to think about as we plan, as we strategize, as we, as we build, as we do all these things as a local body of believers. Are we keeping in mind that we are a holy nation, a chosen race? God specifically called you and I out. He wanted us. And even though we may be exiled from society, meaning that we we, we do not live as society does. As a matter of fact, society may have rejected us. There was a time when Christianity was accepted. It was approved of. It was the religion of the state. It was, it was, it was what everyone was to do, and some took it to an extreme, and then there are some countries where it was the mandated religion. That's not what God intended. He intended you to choose because... I mean, he intended he chose you and thus you respond by loving him. But here's what he said. He said, look, I chose you out so that you could represent me in this world. So how are we doing? See, we've, especially here in the Western world, we've so privatized Christianity. It is all about me and my faith, and that's it. But every time I look in the scripture, I see we in our faith. Yes, individually, you came to Christ. You were responsible to responding to Christ individually. After you did that and your growth, yes, you are responsible for growing in your faith. But the context that God sets it as you look all throughout Scripture is in the context of community. He never has Christians as lone rangers growing by themselves. I got my faith. That's all I need. Don't bother me. Mm, that's not the plan of God. The very fact of how you and I grow, he wired us that it was intended for us to grow in the company of other believers. And so when I try to get by myself and do this thing alone, I'm not saying that you don't have any alone time because I, my wife will tell you, I appreciate alone time and some downtime. But, but that's not what he's talking about. He said, if you're like, I'm just going to do life by myself, you're outside the will of God. Because God intended for you to do life with other people that were like-minded. And every example I get in scripture points to that. Yes, I'm responsible for that daily time with the Lord by myself. And why do I do that? So that when I get up and I go to be in the group, I'm not the one that they go, oh, here he comes. <laughs> See, if every place I go, turmoil exists, I may be the reason for the turmoil. Why is everywhere I go there always trouble? Mm, might want to carry a pocket mirror. See, the issue becomes God has called us as a chosen, I love this, race collective, a holy nation collective. When God talks about, who is he talking to? A group of people. He didn't tell them to go back into your holy silos and to make sure that you have yourself snuggled in and just hold it down until I return. Jesus says, you're a group that are to represent me in a culture that is pushing against you. So a holy nation that you might proclaim the excellencies. And then he says, 
as a reminder, just in case they start, you know, they start feeling themselves. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Can you imagine that? You go from being not even a part. He said you were not a people. You were not known as a group called out by that group. You were just scattered. You were individuals doing your own thing. Once you are not a people, he says, but now you are. He didn't say now you're a people. He says now you're God's people. You went from nothing to the top. You went from not being recognized because of your individuality and really not even important to going to the ultimate. He says you went from not a people to God's people. He's trying to get in their minds how they're going to stand up against the opposition that they're facing. How do you fight against suffering? One, you know who you are, and then you know whose you are. Those two things will hold you as you walk through suffering. And so then he says, look, once you did not, once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. I love that. He says, look, you are without it. As a matter of fact, you are without Christ in this world. You were lost and you were heading straight for a lost eternity. And he said, now, now, you have mercy. Now God's compassion, God's undeserved favor, God's, God, God has reached out his hand, not because of who you were. There wasn't anything, and I've said this before, there wasn't anything about you and me that would cause God to reach out his hand to do something good for us. Oh, well, you know, God should have chose me because I was on the right path. No, no, you weren't. You weren't on the right path. Like all the rest of us, you were headed straight to hell. And God said, let me extend mercy and reach out. And he reached out and you responded as he reached out. And so every day, his mercies are fresh and new. Every morning when you open your eyes, you have received a fresh set of mercy from the God who called you out so that you would represent him. How are you doing? And then the second part, a chosen nation and a holy household. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we have to read this first part so that we get an understanding. You remember I said Ephesians, the first three chapters sets up your position. If you just want to get it very basically, you know, six chapters, the first three chapters of Ephesians sets up the Christian's position in Christ. What has been done and where you are. In essence, who you are. He sets up who you are. And then the last three chapters now begins to lay out, because this is who you are, this is how you're to live. And so if you were to put it in two things, Ephesians is split in half. It is your position, and after you understand your position, here's your practice. That's what Ephesians is telling us. This is why it's a great book to go to as a group of believers walking in Christ that we understand who we are and where we are. Many of us, we just want to focus on the first three chapters and we gloat and we, and we glory in the fact that this is who I am. This is my position in Christ. But I say, hold on, you only got halfway through the book. Don't talk about your position if you don't intend to have any practice. 
And so as he's setting up their position, let's read together in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Understand, he's talking about you were non-Jews, you were Gentiles, you were not part of that covenant that God had, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. I don't know how much more miserable you can get. Every time I read it, he just keeps going, I want to go, stop, 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 no, no. He said, let me tell you all of where you were. Why does he do that? So when he tells you all of where you are now, your appreciation level, your gratefulness level would be high. He says, but, biggest contrast you can have in this language here, but now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh to the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you see what he was doing, who he was talking about? Because they were Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were the people of covenant and of promise, who God had come to and had established his covenant. And so those that were not Jews were outside of God's covenant and promise. But God's intention always was to bring everyone in. He did not intend to have two people. And so he worked through them to bring about his Christ. His intention was to show what a people living under the rule of God could do. But they, like any of us did, would have done, they chose to live their own way. And we see how God disciplined and how he punished and how he dealt with him. But he remained faithful to his promise of the covenant. He brings about Christ. Why? Because he was planning on bringing both parties together. And he says that, that, that through the blood of Christ, he have now made out of two, one, so that they would represent Christ. Once again, do you hear, do you see the communal language that God is giving? He says, one new man in him, having now been brought to peace, and he has torn down that which divided them. There's no dividing wall. There's no hostility. And then he says later, both groups have been reconciled to God. And so he says, so then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, those who have come before them. And he says, and mem I mean, saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being that cornerstone or that stone that everything is now built around and on. In him, I mean, I'm sorry, in whom the whole structure being joined together, communal language, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together, communal language, into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. You hear what he's saying. 
Who are we? Not only are we a holy nation, not, not only are we a chosen and a holy nation, we're a holy household. He says, I did all this to bring you into one household. When, when we have family reunions, it is amazing to see all those people under one roof in one household. The joy of it is that people that are living in different places and are, and are possibly you know, living some different ways, they come together and realize we all belong together because we are under whoever the patriarch and matriarch of that family is. i never forget the first time when we celebrated on my father's side, my you know, grandfather and grandmother, they had a chance to be together for 53 years before he passed away. And, um, and I remember being in there and these people that were called my cousins that I had never met. And some of these people that I had seen and, 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 and they would always ask, okay, so who's your mother and father? And, who's, and, and I remember sitting there counting. Me and one of my cousins, we just begin to count the number of children and grandchildren. So at that particular time, it was, it was 11 children of my grandmother, of whom my father was oldest boy. And then it was 54 grandchildren. There were more after that. And then there were a whole bunch of great grandchildren. Well, then come my grandmother's 100th birthday when we celebrated, it was children, grandchildren, great children. I mean, um, great grand and great, great grand. It was just amazing that we just said from two people, all of us are gathered together under them. And it was amazing that that Costin household was gathered. When we celebrated my grandmother's 100th birthday, we had a room where we couldn't even get everyone. I think it sat like 350 or 400 people, and it was packed. And then on my mother's side, when we had the same thing, when we had their 50th wedding anniversary, it was the same thing. All these people are here because of two. And today, God is saying to you and I, we are all here because of one. And he says, how dare we don't act like a household. When you come to reunion, don't act out. He says, understand why you gather. You gather because of. And so when we were there, the pride of the Costin household was just, I mean, it was there, it was huge, it was so wonderful to be there as we all realized we were there because two people were committed to one another and over the years this is what was developed. How much more? We are all here because of the death and resurrection of one person and we gather here and he says, how dare we represent anything else? He says, you are a holy household. And so our whole identity is in Christ, but it is expressed with one another. And so when we get into our Lone Ranger mindsets, when we get into the, I don't want to be bothered with you, when we get into, nah, I don't need to be with anyone, it's just me and I'm cool, we are saying to God, I don't recognize who started all of this. I did this myself. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to sit over here by my... That's like you going to your family reunion and saying, I don't need all y'all. I'm going to go have my party over here by myself. No one would dare do that. And so when we do that inside the body of Christ, God says, you obviously have forgotten who started you. You obviously have forgotten who brought you into being.
And so what do we do with that? He says, look at the end of that. When he actually says to us, in whom the whole, verse 21, I'm sorry, in verse 20, built on the foundation, because now he is saying that we are part of this household, and this household was built on the foundation of the apostles. That's the apostles' teaching that they got directly from Christ, built on the, on the apostles and the prophets, and so they go back to that which was established, that which, that which foretold Christ's coming. And he says, so that which was built on the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, the center of it all is Christ, in whom, in whom he's talking about Christ, in whom the whole structure joined together grows. So this is an organic building. Because at last time I checked, buildings don't grow. You build it, and you come back next year, and there's another floor? No. Buildings don't grow. And so this is an organic, living, breathing uh, structure. And he says it grows, it increases, it matures. And he says the intent is that it, it, it matures into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're a place where God dwells and lives because he lives in its individual members. And it is by the power of a spirit that that happens. Why? So that people will see and understand who God is. I firmly believe. Why is it that the world has such a problem with the church? Because we aren't representing the one who has built us. We aren't. If we were in this world, as God had intended, we could have the same impact as the church of the early days did on its world. What's the difference? Is Jesus different today than he was back then? No. Was the word of God, as a matter of fact, they were getting the word. We have it all. They were getting it in response to what was happening. We have it all in front of us. As a matter of fact, we don't even have nearly the persecution, at least here. There are parts in the world where they are being persecuted just as heavily as they were back in those days, but we aren't. So the issue is, what is our issue? Like my sister used to like to say to someone, she would go, what's your damage? What's your problem? What's going on? Why is it that we can't reflect who God is as a holy temple to this world? I would say we don't know who we are, and so thus we don't know how we are to live in our world. And God tells us, you reflect me best when you live out your faith together, as you care for one another with godly passion and compassion, as you desire to live holy day by day in your relationships, not just individually with other people. And you say, man, you spend a lot of time on this relationship deal because that was at the center of what God was forming. And if it's at the center of what it was forming, I need to ask us, what are we doing? And so who are we? We are people that live together for God's purposes so that the excellencies of him who formed us would be proclaimed to this world. How are we doing? Everything we do must be gauged on that foundation. We are a holy nation.
We are a chosen race. We are the household of God. We are the holy household of God, which means we are striving to continue to live holy and encouraging others to do so, not joining in on the sin in the world. The world does not dictate what we do. I've heard people say, the church should be doing, that's like somebody outside, your, that's like your neighbor across the street telling you how you should be living in your house. And every last one of you laugh because you'll be like, yo, man, mind you, tell you what, why don't you take care of your house? I'll take care of mine. And for us today, no, outside forces do not tell the church how to live and what they should be doing. God has already done that. I don't need to be rebuked by the world. God is already doing it. I don't need to be instructed by the world. God is already doing it. I don't need to be encouraged by the world. God is already doing it. What God calls you and I to do is to reach out to them and let them realize they're outside of God and that they need him. So how are we doing? That's a question that we're going to answer throughout this year. How are we doing? How are we doing together? Which will show how we're doing individually. See, because to the degree that I live in accordance with God's will with you means that I'm living in accordance with God's will with him. Because when I'm out of fellowship with him, guarantee I'm going to be out of fellowship with you. Because he's the one that keeps me centered and my eyes in the right place so that I can see you clearly. When my relationship is out of sorts with you, I bet if I went back and I tied it in, there is something in my relationship with God that's not where it needs to be. And so I can't be on sync with you. So when I get me and God right, I'll get me and you right. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Father, that we are a chosen race, a holy nation, and a holy household. Father, you have called us out so that we collectively would represent you to this world. And Father, I pray that we do that. All we do, everything we are, what we give, how we plan, what we purpose would be with you in mind, that we would represent you, we would proclaim your excellencies to this society, to this world together. Father, and when we veer off, I pray that you would remind us, you would set us straight, you would keep us in line. Father, you have not called us to be in our holy silos. Neither have you called us to be in these holy huddles that we don't engage our world. You've called us to, to, to huddle together so that the world will see who we are because you made us. And when they say who we are, Lord, they would understand that they could be a part of it too. So, Father, I pray today that you would help us to realize who we are. Because by us realizing that, we will realize who we should be in our world. We ask you this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you right here. As